0: Welcome to Table Talk. In our last Table Talk we looked at the subject of the general resurrection of the dead. And we asked a very interesting but somewhat difficult question. The rhetorical question posed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 35. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? From that point we went on to explore the effect that the resurrection of the dead on the last day Would have upon those who do not know Christ, both the ungodly living and the ungodly dead. Now that brings us to another subject, the subject of the Battle of Armageddon, as mentioned in Revelation chapter 16. What is it? When does it happen? I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. Been learning in table talk that there is just one resurrection day. A glorious day when the Lord will return and the dead will be raised, both the wicked dead and the righteous dead, and those who do not know the Lord Jesus will stand before God in judgment, condemned under the unbearable burden of the broken law. Shamed by their sins, now all laid bare before their Creator and rightly cast away into eternal darkness to bewail their sin and their misery forever and ever. That's a simple enough end times position. But it seems to leave little room for this epic battle, the conflict to end all conflicts, the battle of Armageddon. So let's see what the common opinion and belief about Armageddon is. And then we'll attempt to contrast that with a reformed viewpoint, from a non-millennialist standpoint, that will be biblical and that will be in conformity with the Reformed Confessions. So we want to look at the topic of Armageddon and speculation. Then we're going to see Armageddon and its solution. And finally, Armageddon, its symbolism. Armageddon and speculation. Well, the subject of the Battle of Armageddon was always a boon for dispensationalist preachers back in the 1970s and 80s. In a big tent somewhere across Northern Ireland, you could go and listen to a preacher doing a series of meetings on the second coming. The usual topics would be trotted out. The secret rapture, the millennial kingdom with its restored temple and sacrifices, the great tribulation, the antichrist and so on, and a special night reserved for the battle of Armageddon. It was always a terrifying prospect, according to these preachers with the armies of this world lined up to do battle with the armies of the Lord. And they would face each other in the plain of Megiddo in Palestine, and the battle would be both fierce and bloody. I could never work out how in a battle like that, with battle scenes so fierce and with so many falling dead, that the Lord's people, who now constitute the physical army of God, could suffer casualties in the conflict. When, as we were told, the battle occurred after the rapture, when the saints had been gathered home to safety. So, admitting my deficiency in premillennialism, I looked through some websites, after all, there's plenty of them, to get some consensus on what Arminians and premillennialists and dispensationalists really believe about Armageddon. If you're one of those groups, and you think that I've got it wrong. I'm sorry about that. I'm only looking at websites. And here's what I learnt from them. I learned that Armageddon is a last day's battle between the forces of evil and the forces of Christ. It seems that the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the devil himself or some of his minions on his behalf will raise an army and engage in battle at the plain of Megiddo. And that will happen sometime after the second coming or the rapture. But exactly when depends on whether the preacher is convinced by pre-tribulation post-millennialism, mid-tribulation post-millennialism, pre-wrath post-millennialism or post-tribulation rapture views. My head's spinning already. Let's move on. The battle, according to most dispensationalists, will be after the return of Jesus. Now, because premillennialist Christians think that the Book of Revelation is literal and is in the future, well, at least from chapter 4 onwards, and because they try to squeeze its visions into a prophetic, linear chronology of the future, they take the Battle of Armageddon quite literally. The third thing I learned from these dispensationalist websites was that some of them believe that Jerusalem will be destroyed and that Jesus will attack the enemy from Mount Zion where he has been reigning since the rapture or since one or another of the several resurrections following the Great Tribulation. He destroys the enemy's headquarters which apparently are now at Jerusalem and the enemy's response is to do war at Armageddon. The fourth thing, that I discovered, is that Armageddon is not the true final battle. Or maybe it is. But if it's not, then there might be another battle, after Satan is released at the end of the millennium that they expect, when the devil will lead another battle of religious mankind against God. And after this other battle, then the great white throne judgment will occur. Now by now you should be confused. I certainly am. Is it any wonder that premillennialists and dispensationalists often have to employ a big chart to try to get people to understand their prophetic schemes? My second point is Armageddon's solution. I want to try and simplify matters. And to do so, I'm going to use a hermeneutical principle called the rule of first mention. So we'll go right back to the book of Judges, where we find the word Megiddo. Har Megiddo, used in the context of a mighty battle. Read Judges chapter 5 and verse 19. The kings came and fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan and Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no gain of money. They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. The river of Kishon swept them away, that ancient river, the river Kishon. O my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. Then were their horse hoofs broken by the means of his prancings, the prancings of their mighty ones. Curse ye, Meros, said the angel of the Lord. Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Now what's this all about? Let's remind ourselves of this exciting narrative from Judges chapter 4 and 5, one of the very many stirring tales that come from the days of the Judges in Israel. After the death of Ehud, who was one of the Judges of Israel, the people of Israel once again did evil, and God punished them by raising up a foreign king called Jabin, the king of Canaan. He was an oppressive tyrant. He raided the fields and he plundered the crops of Israel and the Israelites were terrified of him. In Judges chapter 5 and verse 6 they cried out to God for deliverance. They could not deliver themselves for Jabin had a mighty army and had a fearsome commander, a man called Sisera. The Israelites, on the other hand, had nothing. Not a sword, not a spear among them. But up in the hills of Ephraim was a godly woman called Deborah, who sent for a leader of Israel called Barak and commissioned him to lead an army into battle against Sisera. Needless to say, Barak was somewhat less than happy with that order. In fact, he only agreed to go into the battle if Deborah herself went along with him. She said that she would. As a consequence of that, she said that there would be no victory march. No battle honours for Barak. For it would be the Lord who would deliver Sisera. And he would deliver him into the hands of a woman. We find out later that that woman was called Jael. So the battle occurred. It was a place called the plain of Megiddo. Where Barak marched out against a seemingly unbeatable foe. After all that army of Jabin had 900 metal chariots that would strike fear into any opposing force. Judges chapter 4 and verse 14 reads like this, And Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, and ten thousand men after him. And the Lord discomfited Sisera, and all his chariots, and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. In essence, what happened was that the Lord himself fought against the army of Sisera, and the battle was won, not by the weak and powerless Israelites, but by God himself. Sisera fled on foot, and seeking sustenance in an isolated tent, met his death, met his death at the hands of Jael, as Deborah had said he would. So in chapter 5 of Judges, Deborah sings a song of praise to the Lord, showing how God in his majesty caused the whole universe to fight against his foes. Judges 5 and verse 4 Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled. And the heavens dropped, the clouds also dropped water. The mountains melted from before the Lord, even that Sinai, from before the Lord God of Israel. Judges 5, verse 19 to 21. The kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera the torrent of Kishon swept them away. So, in Revelation, when God speaks through John about Armageddon, Armageddon, about God coming to fight on behalf of his people, when he talks about kings gathering on a plain, what's going to come to mind to those who are familiar with the history of Israel and the Old Testament? For them... Armageddon becomes the symbol of every battle in history, where God's oppressed people are outnumbered, outmanoeuvred, outgunned, until the Lord in his power reveals his might on their behalf and defeats their enemy. Let's see how that simplifies our perspective on the end time battle of Armageddon. Let's look. At my third point, Armageddon in symbolism. The final battle in which God will come to the rescue of his people will of course be at the very last day of history. This final Antichrist has been revealed and the whole world seems to be gathered to oppose and oppress the Lord's Church and true Christians are crying out to God for relief and for deliverance. The church is outnumbered. It seems that the battle is lost when suddenly, dramatically and without warning, the Lord intervenes, delivering his people from the hands of his foes. That is Armageddon. Think of the similarities between the language of Revelation 16.15 and the language of Paul and Peter writing about the soon coming of the Lord Jesus. Here's the similarities. Revelation 16 and verse 15. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now compare that with 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Or Second Peter 3 and 10 But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. In Revelation Armageddon is an aspect of the sixth bowl poured out. The seventh is the final judgment. So you can see that Armageddon is simply symbolic of that great day when the Lord Jesus will come and will defeat all his enemies and will lead his people home and will sit in judgment upon the ungodly. William Hendrickson, the author of a highly recommended commentary on Revelation called More Than Conquerors, Note that for the hosts of this world, their fate on that day will be utter defeat. The Antichrist is overthrown and sent into everlasting punishment. Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 8 And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Revelation 17 and verse 11 The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. That's to destruction. So the Antichrist will be overthrown on the day when the Lord returns. And what of the hosts of evil? Well, they will be gathered before God's throne. They will be declared guilty by their own sinful rebellion against God. And the wrath of God will be poured out upon them. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 41 The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness. Matthew 25 verse 41 to 46 Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And what of the devil himself? He will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20 and verse 10 The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night, for ever and ever. So we see something of the fate of the lost. Of the Antichrist, of the hosts of evil, and of the devil on that day when the Lord returns. So have we solved the mystery of the Battle of Arm again? Well, perhaps so, looking at it symbolically. But remember that because another believer disagrees with us on these end-time matters, we are not to consider that believer as an apostate or as a heretic. These are not primary saving matters. What really matters is that we know for sure that Christ is coming back. That he is coming again to take his own people home, to be with himself forever and ever. An event that will happen when it is least expected. And that we should be waiting for that day, working for the Lord, redeeming the time until that great day of the Lord occurs.